0: This audio recording is presented by Jews for Judaism. We are dedicated to keeping Jews Jewish. www.jewsforjudaism.ca
1: I mentioned earlier that no Jewish person is going to be able to take this eight-week course and be able to uh, spar with a Christian missionary. Don't get cocky. Uh, you know this is not a black belt in religion you're taking a two week self defense course here it doesn't allow you to walk around the Bronx at night by yourself so what I want to just say over to you is a story that I actually heard from a Christian missionary I think it's a wonderful story but in terms of what will really make Jewish people secure it's not going to be learning a little bit about Christian missionary tactics uh, Uh, This fellow told me a story about the United States um, Bureau of Tobacco and Alcohol, which tracks counterfeiters. So he told me that they have a very interesting program for training agents to deal with counterfeit money producers. He said, you would think that what they would do is take these people into like some back room and show them how counterfeit money is made and show them counterfeit money and let them learn how to identify counterfeit money. Right and get a real feel for how the counterfeiters work. No, it's not how they train these people. They take these agents, and all they do is let them handle and look at real U.S. currency. That's all they go near, it's all they touch. And these agents become so intimate and so familiar with U.S. real currency that they can spot a counterfeit in two seconds. So, the the real approach towards... um, healthy Jewish consciousness in terms of being able to function in a Christian world or in any, any challenging situation is to really get grounded in Judaism and Jewish sources. And to understand what Jews believe, why we believe it, and not to have a superficial understanding of things and to really feel grounded as a Jew. At that point, you will be able to withstand any challenges. The basic technique that Christians use to analyze the Jewish Bible um, can be explained in a, in a parable. I have it on the paper here. but I like to tell the story so you just bear with me if you haven't read it yet. It was a story told originally by the Dubnyr Magid who was a great uh, Jewish teacher 250 years ago approximately. It was in, in Europe. And he, would, he was actually known as a great parable teller. He was brilliant at coming up with, parale- with, with uh, parables to really teach any lesson in the world. So someone once asked him, how do you come up, how were possible for you to come up with these stories that are so amazing? So he said, I'll tell you a story about how I do this. <laughs> so he said, uh, there was once a guy who was walking around the forest and he's taking this walk through the forest and he sees this tree. And on the tree, there's a, a, a target, like for target practice, and right in the middle of the bullseye, not a little bit off center, but dead center, 100%. And surgically centered is an arrow. And there aren't three or four bad shots. It's boom, one shot right in the middle. It's a good shot. It looks impressive. He walks a little further. Same thing, another tree, another target, another arrow. Boom, dead center in the middle. He's walking in every few feet. He's another one of these trees with a target, with a bullseye. So now he's getting nervous because this this is almost like impossible. So he is curious to see who's been shooting. He meets some guy down the trail with a bow and arrow and quiver, and said, do you have to shoot those arrows? And the guy says, yeah. He says, I I can't believe it, how'd you do that? He says, actually, it's very easy. You see, first I shoot my arrow into the tree, and then I draw the target around it. (laughs) So, if you understand this metaphor, it's a very, very important metaphor for understanding how Christianity basically approached the Jewish Bible. Essentially, if you remember from Alice in Wonderland, right? They first had the verdict, and then they had the trial. That was the trial in Alice in Wonderland. Not the trial and the verdict. So Christianity basically began with its conclusion. Jesus was the Messiah. That was it. That's what we believe. Now let's go back to the Jewish Bible and find stuff that seems to shore up that belief. Right? It's basically working backwards. It's not as if they went to the Bible to find out what's true. They first started out with their belief, and then they went back to the Bible. And we're going to see tonight that the major error, conceptually, that missionaries make when looking at the Jewish Bible is to basically look at things out of context. And we're going to see that over and over tonight. I want to also recommend a beautiful little book. It's a book by someone named Frederick Cruz, and it's a book called Pooh Perplex. It's basically a book about Winnie the Pooh, and it's a book that satirizes literary criticism. And the book has 20 essays that analyzes Winnie the Pooh, showing that Winnie the Pooh is either a theological work, or it's a Freudian psychological work, or it's a book on economics, but he manages to prove from Winnie the Pooh all of these theories. It's brilliant. And his thesis basically is, that given any text, you can prove whatever you want. You can read into any text. One more point we go into our text. Obviously, we cannot go through every Christian proof text in this course. And generally what happens when Christians run into problems with their proof text is they'll say, look, so maybe you knocked off three or four, but we have 300. That's the classical line, by the way. The Christianity claims that there are 300 proof in the New, in the Old Testament, 300 passages which prove that Jesus was the Messiah. Now, just let you know on a secret. When I speak to Christians, sort of, you know, man to man, they say to me, "Look, you know, it's not really 300. That's a bit of an exaggeration." Well, how many, how many is it really? So most of them, when you pin them down, they will say, "We have maybe like eight or nine good ones," <laughs> but that's not important. What they'll often say to Jewish people is, because it's an impressive thing, we have three, because you can pick off two or three, who's going to sit there and go through 300 arguments? So they'll say, look, maybe this one wasn't good, this one was a little bit, uh, you know, but 300 proofs? So the answer is very simply, 300 times zero is zero, right? You do not make 300 weak arguments stronger by having them all hold hands. It does not improve the quality of the arguments to just group a lot of bad ones together. And I want you to remember that because it's a constant refrain among missionaries. We have hundreds of proofs, right? The hundreds of proofs are worthless if they're not strong. Okay, what we're going to do tonight, hopefully we'll finish, is look at the four basic ways that missionaries misuse the Jewish Bible. A, mistake number one is quoting out of context. Matthew chapter 2 is actually the entire gospel of Matthew it's one of the four gospels the entire gospel of Matthew is very uh, slanted towards trying to prove Christianity through the Jewish Bible of all the gospels it appeals the most to the Old Testament proof text so Matthew chapter 2 is essentially the infancy narratives about Jesus and let me just before we start tell you what's going to happen so it'll be clearer Jesus is born, and the the ruler at that time, Herod, was very nervous because he heard a rumor that the Jewish Messiah was born. Some some wise men or three magi come, they visit him. They tell him that they've heard the Jewish Messiah was born. Now, what is his reaction? Does he say, "Great, let's make a party"? No. He understands that the Jewish Messiah is going to become the king and overthrow him. He's not stupid. And he doesn't believe that the Jewish Messiah is going to come and die for the sins of the world. If that was the whole purpose of the Messiah, he wouldn't be threatened by that. So he decides he's got to get rid of this kid before the kid grows up. So he wants to find out where this kid is. He tries to get the Magi to lead him to where the baby's born. Anyway, the three wise men, they, they, they understand that he's got only no good in mind. And they give him the slip. They, they, they basically give him the slip. But he does find out from Jewish sources that the Messiah is supposed to be born in Bethlehem. Whether that's true or not, we'll analyze. But just to make sure that he nips the problem in the bud, Herod killed every Jewish baby under the age of two in the city of Bethlehem and its surrounding towns. So Jesus and his family, Joseph and Mary, were warned in a dream by an angel that this is going to happen. You been get out of town but while the going is good. So they run away they go to Egypt. They stay in Egypt we're told until Herod is dead. So this sounds very much like the Moses story, right? So uh, Moses flees Egypt until Pharaoh passes away and he can come back. So now Jesus runs away to Egypt until Herod dies and then he can come back to Israel. So that's what essentially happens in chapter 2. And he comes back at the end of the chapter. So let's read now. Matthew chapter 2. Now, after these wise men had left, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up and take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. Then Joseph got up and took the child and his mother by night and went to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet who said, Out of Egypt I have called my son. So here, Matthew is quoting a verse from the Jewish Bible. And is seeming to imply that the Jewish Bible predicted many, many hundreds of years before the story of Jesus that the Messiah would be someone who'd be called out of Egypt. Now, what's peculiar here is that Matthew quotes this verse about the Son being called out of Egypt to fulfill what in the story is the Messiah going into Egypt. I mean, it's not clearly uh, consistent. Because here, what Matthew is trying to prove is that the Messiah, or Jesus, was supposed to go to Egypt. And the verse speaks about someone coming out of Egypt. But the most important thing to understand is that what Matthew did here was to appeal to a verse in the book of Hosea, in the Jewish Bible, that he doesn't quote fully. The verse in Hosea, chapter 11, verse 1, says, When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son." We know from the Hebrew Bible that who is referred to as God's son throughout the Hebrew Bible? The Jewish people are referred to as God's child or God's son. We have an example here in Exodus chapter 4 where God says to Moses, Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son. V'ni b'chori Yisrael. My firstborn son, God says, is Israel. So in the book of Hosea, The prophet in chapter 11 is speaking about the early history of the Jewish people and says that when Israel was a child, meaning in the infancy of the Jewish people, in the infancy of Jewish history, God said, I love the Jewish people. I loved him, the Jewish people. And out of Egypt, I called my son because God took the Jewish people out of Egypt. Does the book of Hosea predict that the Messiah would be coming out of Egypt? Is there any indication in Hosea here that it's speaking about a Messiah? This we'll have to check into. Let's go further in the book of Matthew. When Herod saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, he was infuriated, and he sent and killed all the children in and around Bethlehem who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had learned from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. Quote, in verse 18, a voice was heard in Ramah wailing and loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be consoled because they were no more. Now here, Matthew actually quotes the entire verse properly. He doesn't quote part of the verse. What's peculiar here historically is, is there any evidence that there was a massacre of all the babies in the city of Bethlehem? Again, like last week's story of Matthew, where all the tombs in Jerusalem were opened up and the the dead Jewish people walked around, came out of their graves, There's no evidence for this in Jewish sources. If every Jewish baby under two was massacred, you would think that Josephus would have mentioned it. Any other contemporary sources would mention it. No such mention. But again, looking at Matthew's proof text, let's go to the passage that he quotes from in the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah chapter 31. He quotes appropriately. Thus says the Lord, A voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. But continue in the book of Jeremiah. Thus says the Lord to Rachel, Keep your voice from weeping and your eyes from tears, for there is reward for your work, says the Lord. They shall come back from the land of the enemy. There is hope for your future, says the Lord. Your children shall come back to their own country. So in the book of Jeremiah, is the prophet here speaking about Rachel weeping for children that are murdered? Clearly not. Because they're coming back from the land of captivity. What's happening in Jeremiah is we're speaking about the Jewish children taken into the Babylonian exile. So here Rachel is weeping for the Jews taken into captivity. And God says, don't cry, they're going to come back. But Matthew misappropriates this passage and applies it to the massacre of children who were killed. Obviously will never come back. So we see here two examples from the book of Matthew where an appeal is made to the Jewish Bible which stands on very shaky ground. You need to appreciate, I can't drive this home enough, you need to appreciate Christians see the Bible as a beautiful picture, a beautiful painting of you-know-who. When Christians read the Jewish Bible, they see Jesus' face on every page. And again, we know that they see it because they start off with the belief that Jesus is the Messiah. They begin with the belief they believe in Jesus. Once they believe in Jesus, they go back to the Bible one find his picture on every page. But you need to appreciate how clearly Christians see this. I once spoke with a woman who was a, a Baptist. And we spoke about her understanding that the Bible is a beautiful painting of Jesus. And we ran with that metaphor. And I asked her if she's ever been to a museum. I go to museums because my wife's an artist. I remember once going to an exhibit in Washington, D.C. of seascapes, painters who painted oceans and seascapes. And I was very struck by the fact that when you stood a certain distance from the painting, they were absolutely beautiful. It looked like you were standing right at the edge of the ocean. What happens as you go closer to a picture? Even go up very close to the Mona Lisa. What do you begin to see? Cracks imperfections. When it's an oil painting, it looks like nothing anymore. And what looks from a few yards away as a beautiful, beautiful landscape or seascape looks like blotches of oil. That's the analogy I used with this woman. I said it's true. When you're standing from far away, not just physically, but far away spiritually from what the Bible really is, you can see Jesus everywhere. But when you begin to examine it up close and you look carefully... What you will notice are tremendous cracks and imperfections and really no support for what you believe. The example I gave this woman was from the book of Zechariah, Zechariah chapter 13. And I asked her to read the sixth verse in this chapter. Zechariah chapter 13, verse 6. And she read this verse. And I asked her, tell me, who do you think... I asked her, who is this verse talking about? And she reads... And one shall say unto him, What are these wounds in your hands? They shall say unto him, What are these wounds in your hands? This, by the way, is from the Jewish Bible. Zachariah is in the Old Testament. And he will answer those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. I've, I've asked this question to over 200 Christians. The answer is always the same. They say to me, Who is it talking about? What are you, were you kidding? You know exactly who it's talking about, Michael. Because once I ask them to read this passage and they open it up in their Bible, it's got yellow underneath it and it's underlined 15 times with a star and an arrow. Because you can bet that they begin their reading of the Bible with believing in Jesus and they come across a doozy like this and they'll say to him, what are those wounds in your hands? Of course it's talking about Jesus. 100% of the Christians that I speak to will tell you this is just about as clear a prophecy as you can get about Jesus. I asked this woman, are you sure that talking about? 100% sure, she said to me. She will die. She lives by this verse. That's how clear it is to them. You need to appreciate how clear it is to them. I then asked her to read from the beginning of the chapter. I said, go back now and read from, from the beginning of the chapter from verse 1. And I watched, not the Bible, when I asked these Christians to read the chapter now, I watched their face. In all cases, their face turns white. They turn white. Why? Because what is chapter 13 speaking about? In that day there shall be a fountain open to the house of David and to the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and uncleanliness. And it shall come to pass in that day, says the Lord of hosts, that I will cut off the names of the idols out of the land. When will idolatry be wiped out? In the age of the Messiah, in the future. This chapter of Zechariah is a future prophecy of the Messianic age. This isn't talking about the Messianic age. And it says that when it happens, that's when idolatry will be wiped out. I will cut out off the names of the idols out of the land, and they shall be no more remembered. And also I will cause the prophets and the unclean spirit to pass out of the land. And it shall come to pass that when any shall prophesy, then his father and his mother that begat him shall say to him, You shall not live, for you speak lies in the name of the Lord. And his father and mother that begat him shall thrust him through when he prophesies. And it shall come to pass in that day that the prophets shall be ashamed every one of his vision when he has prophesied, neither shall they wear a rough garment to deceive, But he shall say, I'm no prophet, I'm a husbandman. For man taught me to keep cattle from my youth. And one shall say unto him, What are those wounds in your hands? And he will say, Those which I was wounded in the house of my friends. This is not speaking about the Messiah having wounds in his hands. This is speaking about false prophets that are thrust through, wounded, in the end of times. Christians that read this chapter from the beginning are very quick to admit that and realize that. Yet, they become seduced because they don't read the Bible straight from the beginning. They read it from the end. They read it from Matthew going back. They read the Bible starting with the conclusion, Jesus was the Messiah. Now, let's look and find where we can find hints of Jesus in the Old Testament. Someone once said that Christian missionaries use the Hebrew Bible like a drunk uses a lamppost. Not so much for illumination, but for support. A few other examples of quoting things out of context. In the book of Hebrews, in the New Testament, chapter 1, the author of Hebrews says, For to which of the angels did God ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be his father and he will be my son. The author of Hebrews is trying to prove that Jesus was someone very, very special. Because of Jesus, apparently, God said, you're my son. In the New Testament, at least, God calls him his son. So the the author of Hebrews says, about whom else did God ever say this? Jesus must be very special. Did God ever say it about the angels or anyone else? The reality, if you look in the book of Deuteronomy, is that God spoke about the Jewish people as having given birth to the Jewish people. Deuteronomy chapter 32, verse 18. You were unmindful of the rock that bore you. You forgot the God who gave you birth. And in the second book of Samuel, chapter 7, where this verse comes from in Hebrews, the Bible is not speaking about Jesus. When your days are fulfilled, God says to King David, and you lie down with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come forth from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me. Who is that referring to? That's King Solomon. So again, what the book of Hebrews does is to quote this out of context claiming that it's a passage about the Messiah, Jesus. In Psalm 41 to tell you a a little bit of a story about how this one came about. I once met a missionary at Temple University in Philadelphia and she gave me a little pamphlet called Thirty-Three Prophecies... I'm sorry, Twenty-Seven Prophecies Fulfilled in One Day. She gave me a little two-page pamphlet called Twenty-Seven Prophecies Fulfilled in One Day. Now, what's funny about this pamphlet is that an earlier edition was called Thirty-Three Prophecies Fulfilled in One Day. Now, why did it go down from 33 prophecies to 27? You will soon see. So, I opened the pamphlet, and I wanted to look. Let's look at the first prophecy that was fulfilled. So, the pamphlet says that Jesus fulfilled the messianic prophecy from the Jewish Bible that predicted that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. That's the claim, that the Jewish Bible predicts that the Messiah would be betrayed by a close friend. It quotes from Psalm 41, Verse 9. Even my bosom friend in whom I trusted, who ate of my bread, has lifted his heel against me. So when we look at here, Psalm 41, we ask ourselves the following questions. Number one. Is Psalm 41 a prophecy? Is this a passage in the Bible which is prophesying the future? Most of the book of Psalms is very difficult to categorize as prophecy. These are stories, essentially, that King David is telling about his own personal life. So it's quite a leap to say that these passages that David writes about himself, autobiographical, are actually prophecies about the future. That's one problem. Second problem. What about this chapter tells you it's speaking about the Messiah? If you were to read chapter 41 in the book of Psalms, I have the whole chapter here, from start to finish, What about this chapter tips its hand and tells you, this is a prophecy that's giving you information about the coming of the Messiah. Pay careful attention because this will help you identify the Messiah at some future date. And the the way you test yourself is, pretend that you're living a day before Christianity or make believe you're living 100 years before Jesus. What about this chapter would let you know that it's speaking about the Messiah? Honest answer, Nothing. What allows Christians to claim it's messianic? Because they've shot their arrow already. Right? they shot their arrow, Jesus the Messiah. Let's go, oh, Jesus was betrayed by Judas Iscariot? Right? He's kissed the kiss of death at the end of the Gospels. Well, look here. It speaks about someone being betrayed by a close friend. This must be talking about Jesus. Therefore, it's a messianic prophecy. So I asked this girl to read the chapter with me, especially verse 4. As for me, I said, O Lord, be gracious to me. Heal my soul, for I've sinned against you. I said, did Jesus say this to God? She's claiming that the passage here, chapter 41, is a prophecy about Jesus. And Jesus is the one that says at the end that my best friend betrayed me. So I asked this missionary girl, what was Jesus speaking back in verse 4? Did Jesus say to God, I've sinned against you. Now Christians believe that Jesus never sinned. And she got very upset, and she turned over the booklet and she said, "Who printed this piece of garbage?" She says it's obviously a stupid pamphlet, and she tore it up. So I said to her, she should be very careful because it's not just this pamphlet published by the American Board of Missions the Jews that claim that John, that uh, Psalm 41 was speaking about Jesus. In John chapter 13, the Gospel of John, he makes the same claim. I speak not of you all, Jesus says. I know whom I've chosen but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He that eats my bread with me lifted up his heel against me. So Jesus himself is making the claim that this is a fulfillment of messianic prophecy. Okay. The second way that Christian missionaries misappropriate the Hebrew Bible, aside from quoting out of context, is circular reasoning. Now, circular reasoning is really the parable of shooting the arrow first and then drawing your target around it. Circular reasoning means you begin with your conclusion and then you work backwards. So in Deuteronomy chapter 18, this is chapter 18 in the book of Zavarim. It's a prophecy that after the death of Moses, prophecy will continue. The Jewish people and Moses are a little bit nervous. What's going to happen when Moses dies? Don't forget, there was an earlier story at the, at the revelation of the, the Torah at Mount Sinai where the Jewish people thought that Moses was gone. What do they do? They go build a golden calf. So now, toward the end of the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is about to pass away, and now they're trying to anticipate what is going to happen when Moses leaves. So God says that there's going to be another prophet appointed after Moses to take over. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your own people. You will heed such a prophet. This is what you requested the Lord your God at Choreb on the day of the assembly when you said, if I hear the voice of the Lord my God anymore or ever again see this great fire, I will die. Then the Lord replied to me, they are right in what they have said. Therefore I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their own people. I will put my words in the mouth of the prophet who shall speak to them everything that I command. So here is a passage where the Bible basically says that God is going to raise up a prophet. Guess who Christians say this is referring to? Jesus. Again, what about this prophecy tells you it's referring to Jesus? You should notice, by the way, it doesn't say, I will raise up the Messiah for them. Not talking about a Messiah, talking about a prophet here. But let's say it's said in this passage, I'm going to raise up the Messiah for them. What about this passage tells you that it's speaking about Jesus? Again, it's like the chicken and the egg. The missionary will say, follow carefully, The missionary will say, I believe in Jesus because the Bible testifies about Jesus. Where, Mr. Missionary, do you see the Bible speaking about Jesus? Right here, Deuteronomy 18. It says the Messiah was going to come. Well, how do you know it's referring to Jesus? Because he was the Messiah. Why do you know he was the Messiah in the first place? Because the Bible prophesies him. Where does the Bible prophesy about him? Here in Deuteronomy 18. All of these passages which speak about the Messiah, any time the Bible would use the word the Messiah, Christians automatically assume it's speaking about Jesus. But again, it's predicated upon their beginning the process by, by thinking that he was the Messiah. They're not proving Jesus from the Bible. They believe in Jesus independently of the Bible. Once they believe in Jesus, they go back to the Bible and everything that talks about the Messiah is heaped onto Jesus. You need to appreciate the the circular nature of this. Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come out of the stump of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. The spirit of the Lord will rest upon him. The spirit of wisdom and understanding. The spirit of counsel and might. The spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. So it's saying here that this person will have the spirit of God. Who do Christians say it's speaking about? Jesus. Jesus. Who did the Mooney say it's speaking about? Reverend Moon. Whoever you believe has the Spirit of God, you will say that this verse is talking about that person. But the verse itself doesn't do anything to identify the subject. Is this clear? There's nothing in this passage that tells you it's speaking about Jesus. Once you believe in Jesus, then you'll go back and say, oh, this passage must be speaking about him. But there, your belief comes before the verse. And missionaries are really working backwards when they try and prove to people Jesus from the verse. A final passage in Matthew chapter 4 from the New Testament. And leaving Nazareth, Jesus came and dwelt in Capernaum. Kfarnachum. Actually, when you read this in Greek, it doesn't make any sense. This is Kfarnachum, which is upon the seacoast in the borders of Zebulun and Naphtali. When he moved to this area... It may be fulfilled which was spoken by Isaiah the prophet, saying, The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali by the way of the sea, beyond Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people which sat in darkness saw great light. And to them which sat in the region region and shadow of death, light is sprung up. Here, the Christians again begin with their assertion that who is the great light of the world? It's Jesus. So once you begin with the assumption that Jesus was the great light, this must be speaking about Jesus. But again, nothing in the book of Isaiah identifies Jesus as the great light. Technique number three, mistranslation. Here we have a very famous passage from the book of Psalms, chapter 22. You have on your left-hand side the King James translation. And we're going to focus in on verse 16. Christians claim that this chapter is a poignant Prophecy of the crucifixion of Jesus. And in verse 16 they say, For dogs have compassed me, the assembly of the wicked have enclosed me, they pierced my hands and my feet. Again, when anything is pierced in the Bible, Christians salivate. They are drawn to this like a magnet. How many people were crucified in Jewish history? you know that hundreds and thousands of Jews are crucified if Jesus were the only person in the history of the world to be nailed to a cross if he were the only one ever then you would have a right to say maybe this verse is referring to Jesus we'll see it's not as as easy as this for Christians but assuming the translation is correct that would be the only way you could pin this verse on Jesus if he were the only person that it applied to but in reality, there were hundreds and thousands of people who were crucified. So who does the Bible speak about when it says they pierced my hands and feet? It could be anyone. And there are other ways of getting your hands and feet, feet pierced other than being crucified. The question is, is this an accurate rendering of the Hebrew? Is this an accurate translation? So we have here in the middle of the page, the Hebrew, Kisavuni klavim adat mere'im. The operand word here, the word that's controversial, is the underlying word, ka-ari. ka'ari. Christians translated as they pierced. They pierced. Let's look at the Jewish translation on the right. For dogs have encompassed me, a company of evildoers have enclosed me, like a lion they are at my hands and my feet. So the Jewish translation of ka'ari is like a lion. The letter chaf, ka, in Hebrew, is the letter that denotes similarity. Ka is like. And ari is a short form of ariye, lion. So we would say that this passage is referring to not the piercing of someone's hands and feet, but someone's hands and feet being attacked like a lion would attack. And the translation would really need to be elliptical, and you might read it, Like a lion, they encircle my hands and feet. Or like a lion, they gnaw at my hands and feet. Or like a lion, they are at my hands and feet. The problem is as follows. How do we know who's right? The Christians would say, Michael, you're afraid of the crucifixion. You don't want to see Jesus here. So you're forced to mistranslate it as talking about a lion. We would say, right? We would say, you have a vested interest in finding Jesus everywhere. And you're forced to mistranslate it as someone having her hands and feet pierced. How can we determine which one of these positions is more correct? So one of the techniques we're going to use in this class is simply to look to the rest of the Bible for corroboration. How is this word, ka'ari, translated throughout the rest of the Bible, not just by Jews, but by Christians? So, Isaiah chapter 38, verse 13. Shivisi adboker ka'ari, same word. I cry for help until the morning like a lion. This is the way it's translated in every Christian Bible. Why all of a sudden does Ka'ari become like a lion when in the book of Psalms it was pierced? Numbers 23, verse 24. Behold, the people shall rise up as a great lion and lift itself up as a young lion. Numbers twenty four verse nine. He couched, he lay down as a lion, Kaari. Ezekiel twenty two Kesher Besoka Kaari torev taraf. There is a conspiracy of her prophets in the midst thereof, like a roaring lion ravening the prey. So every time this word kari is used in the Bible, it's translated not just by Jews, but by Christians as like a lion. Another interesting factor is that throughout the book of Psalms, David is constantly using the imagery of being attacked by wild beasts as his enemies. We know that David lived a life of tremendous danger. He was someone that was attacked not just by his own children, his own son, but by his former boss, King Saul. He spent a tremendous amount of time running away from people trying to kill him. And he speaks about these enemies, these people that are trying to kill him. He uses the metaphor, the imagery of animals. Throughout the Bible, the enemies of the Jewish people are expressed often as wild animals trying to kill the Jewish people, the small prey. In the book of Psalm, chapter 7, verse two, O Lord my God, in you do I put my trust. Save me from all them that persecute me and deliver me, lest he tear my soul like a lion, rending it in pieces while there is none to deliver. Psalm 17, verse 12. From the wicked that oppress me, from my deadly enemies who compass me about, they're enclosed in their own fat with their mouth, they speak proudly, they have now encompassed us in our steps they have set their eyes bowing down to the earth like as a lion that is greedy of his prey, etc. If you go back to the psalm, back to Psalm 22 for a second, you'll notice that within Psalm 22 itself there are different imageries of animals and lions. Back to verses 12 and 13. Many bulls have compassed me, strong bulls of Bashan have beset me around. They gasped upon me with their mouths as a ravening and roaring lion. Verses 20 and 21. Deliver my soul from the sword, my darling from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth, for you have heard me from the horns of the unicorns. Constant appeal throughout the Psalms of David to his being attacked by animals and lions. Fourth problem, fourth misuse of the Bible by Christian missionaries is fabricated references. Here, the easiest way of showing that Jesus fulfilled biblical prophecy is to make up the biblical prophecy. In the book of Matthew, we looked at chapter 2 before, it told the story of Jesus fleeing to Egypt. And then finally, at the end of the chapter, we see that Herod dies. So when Herod died, an angel Lord suddenly appeared in the dream of Joseph in Egypt and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who were seeking the child's life are dead. And Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelius was ruling over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go to Judea. And after being warned in a dream, he went to the district of Galilee in the north. There he made his home in a town called Nazareth, so that what had been spoken through the prophets might be fulfilled, quote, he will be called a Nazarene. Now, Ostensibly, what Matthew is saying here is that there was an Old Testament prophecy saying that the, Ma- that the Messiah would be called a Nazarene because he would live in the city of Nazareth. Look as you might through the entire Hebrew Bible, there is no such verse anywhere. Now, Christians are very embarrassed by this, and they will claim that what it may be referring to is a verse in the book of Judges, chapter 13, verse 5, where... An angel tells the mother of Samson, For lo, you will conceive and bear a son, and no razor shall come upon his head. For the child shall be a Nazarite unto God from the womb. And he shall begin to deliver Israel out of the hands of the Philistines. So the claim is, if you know a little bit of Hebrew, you know how klutzy this is. The claim is that when the mother of Samson was told that her child will be a Nazarite, that's the reference here to Jesus being called a Nazarene. Now, the the depth of the stupidity here is amazing. First of all, the passage in Judges never says the kid will be called a Nazarite. It says he will be a Nazarite. A Nazarite was someone who abstained from drinking wine, didn't cut their hair, didn't come in contact with dead corpses. But secondly, a Nazarite who takes a vow to not drink wine is a technical... Office or a or a role that someone played in biblical Judaism, it has nothing to do with the city of Nazareth. Okay, so inventing verses is commonplace. Let's just look at one more. Matthew twenty-seven. This is the famous story of uh, Judas Iscariot, who took thirty pieces of silver for betraying Jesus, and feels so guilty after betraying Jesus that he kills himself. So in the book of Matthew, chapter twenty-seven. He said the chief priests took the silver pieces and said it is not lawful for to put them into the treasury because it is the price of blood. Judas had given back the thirty pieces of silver that he was bribed with, and they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field to bury strangers in. Wherefore that field was called the field of blood unto this day. Then was fulfilled that which was spoken by Jeremiah the prophet, saying, and they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him that was valued whom they of the children of Israel did value, and gave them for the potter's field as the Lord appointed me. The claim again here is that the prophet Jeremiah had a prophecy about this whole story of Judas betraying Jesus, getting the money, giving it back, and buying a potter's field with that money. Number one, if you go through the entire book of Jeremiah, there is no such passage at all. You find a a similar passage in the book of Zechariah, chapter 11, but it has nothing to do with the story of a betrayal of a Messiah and then the subsequent suicide of the betrayer. It's literally a completely fabricated reference. Just to sum up here, all you need to do when examining any Christian proof text is, number one, does the verse exist? Meaning when they claim that such a verse proves something from the Old Testament, number one, does the verse exist? And has it been cited... And translated properly. Second question to ask. Has the verse been taken out of context? Okay. Which means, is it really a prophecy in the first place? Is this verse that you're looking at a prophecy? Number two, is it a messianic prophecy? And number three, is there any proof that it refers exclusively to Jesus? Or could it apply to other people or another person? All the passages we looked at tonight... are not passages that are really used by Christian missionaries. There aren't any Christian missionaries that will use any of the passages we looked at tonight, although they are from the New Testament. But I try to show you how pathetic they are and how weak they are. They wouldn't appeal to anyone, and they're not used. They become part of the long list of 300 quote-unquote proof texts. What we're going to do in the next few weeks is look at the best punches that missionaries have, the ones that they really use. And we'll begin tonight by looking at one that's very popular and one that illustrates several of the conceptual mistakes used by Christian missionaries. This is the famous prophecy of the virgin birth. So let's all look at Matthew chapter 1. And here we have the birth story of Jesus. And Matthew begins in verse 18 by saying the following. This is the King James edition. You'll be able to pick up the old King James style English very quickly. Now, the birth of Jesus Christ was on this wise, meaning in this way. This is the way it happened. When as a mother Mary was espoused to Joseph before they came together, she was found with child of the Holy Spirit, of the Holy Ghost. Now, a Christian who's not familiar with Talmudic Judaism probably will have difficulty reading this verse. What does it mean that after they were married, before they came together, meaning that why weren't they sleeping together if they were married already? And you can read this chapter as a Christian and say, I can't figure out what kind of marriage they had. You mean Joseph and Mary are married, but they never had sex? What's going on? So you need to understand that in Jewish law, 2,000 years ago, there was a two-tiered stage, a two, two-part uh, process of getting married. There was an engagement period that lasted for one year, and then there was the consummation of the marriage. During that one-year period, between the betrothal and the marriage it was a time when the house would be set up the husband would begin to put his job together begin to prepare for the marriage but during that one year period they were legally married they were married to the extent that if they wanted to end this relationship they needed a formal divorce and if the woman had a with someone else during this period of time even though the marriage was never consummated this would be considered an act of adultery and possibly uh worthy of the death penalty. So, the passage here in Matthew is assuming that that's what happened, that Mary and Joseph were espoused, they had this Jewish engagement, it's called Kiddushin, and they hadn't yet reached the one year, end, the end of the one year period of time when they consummate the marriage. So during this one year period, it turns out that Mary gets pregnant. Then Joseph, her husband, being a just man, and not willing to make her a public example, was minded to put her away privily. It sounds so nice. What it means is, instead of putting her on trial for adultery, he decided to just send her her away. Let her move to another town and get started again in her life. But while he thought on these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared unto him in a dream, saying, Joseph, thou son of David, fear not to take unto you Mary as your wife, For that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And she will bring forth a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. And now all of this was done, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken of the Lord by the prophet, saying, and now he quotes from the Jewish Bible in the book of Isaiah, quote, Behold, a virgin shall be with child, and shall bring forth a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which being interpreted means God is with us, or God with us. Christian missionaries will claim that Jesus fulfilled a prophecy from the Jewish Bible which predicted that the Messiah would be born of a virgin. And the way missionaries play on Jewish ignorance is to quote this prophecy and let the Jewish person scream and say, wait a second, you can't use the New Testament with me. Because as soon as the Christian speaks about a virgin birth, the Jew assumes that he's reading from the New Testament. And the missionary says, No. This is from the Jewish Bible. This is from the book of Isaiah. Chapter seven. This is your own Bible. The Jewish Bible. So let's just look quickly at Isaiah chapter seven. You look in verse 14 here, the arrow He quotes, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. If you were to study this passage carefully, I have in my Bible about 25 major problems with this passage from the book of Isaiah. We're going to look at a few major problems. The first problem is the one of context, which we've seen before. Is this passage in Isaiah being quoted in context or out of context? What's fascinating is that missionaries... This passage will roll off their tongues very, very fluently, very smoothly. They all know Isaiah 7.14. It's like we call this Rolodex Bible. They have these verses that they can flip through. Isaiah 7.14, Daniel 9, Isaiah 53, etc. It's like a quarterback calling a play. It's 52, 38, 42, hike. So if you would ask these Christians, okay, you quoted Isaiah seven fourteen. What does Isaiah 7, one talk about? Seven two, seven three, seven four. 7.3, What's going on here in this chapter? I've almost never gotten an answer from most Christians I've spoken to. If you ask them, what is the context of this chapter? They're starting in the middle. Is verse 14. Well, what's going on before verse 14? Blank expressions. No one knows. So the important part to begin, the part, important place to begin here is by looking at the context of chapter 7 in Isaiah. Let me just set it up for you and then we'll read it quickly. You need to know that at the time, Isaiah wrote approximately 700 years before the Common Era, or as we call it in this course, before the Common Era. And that's that's the time frame. And at that point in Jewish history, there was a major split among the Jewish people. They weren't one big happy family like we are right now.
2: So... (laughs) <laughs>
1: you find the the basic material for this split in the first book of Kings chapter 12 we're told that after the death of King Solomon one of his sons was named Rechavam, who was the king of Judea king of Israel basically and there was a split between Rehoboam and another leader called Yeroboam and this split pres- basically resulted in the division of the 12 Jewish tribes into two blocks. The 10 northern tribes, which became the kingdom of Israel, you'll see on on your map there, it's the portion on top with the arrow next to it called Israel. Those are the 10 northern tribes. And in the south, there were the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And you had also in the south the Levites but essentially you had a huge split within the Jewish world. And these two groups were at war with each other. It was not a friendly situation. There was a civil war for many, many years. We're told that oftentimes one or the other side would enter into an alliance with neighboring countries in order to swing the balance of power. So what happened at this particular juncture was that the northern kingdom, it's by the way known as the kingdom of Israel, or Ephraim, it has two names, it's called by the name of Israel or Ephraim, they entered into an alliance with the kingdom of Syria, which was in the northeast. On the map, you don't see the entire area, but Syria was large. And you had these two kingdoms of the ten northern tribes of Israel and the kingdom of Syria attacking simultaneously the two southern tribes in Judah. The king back then, the king of Judah, was someone named Ahaz. Ahaz was a wicked king. What happens here is that because Ahaz in the south is besieged by these two great powers, he panics. He's scared to death. And essentially the chapter is going to speak about his reaction to this crisis and how the prophet Isaiah comes to reassure him. So back to Isaiah chapter 7 in the first verse. And it came to pass in the days of Ahaz, the son of Yosem, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah. So we know who that is. It's king of Judah. That Rezin the king of Syria, Syrian king, and Pechaz, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, the king of the ten northern tribes, went up toward Jerusalem. That was the capital of Judah. To war against it, but could not prevail against it. So you have this war and siege going on against the two southern tribes in Judah. And it was told the house of David, saying... The house of David is the kingdom in the south, saying... Syria is an alliance, is a confederate with Ephraim. And its heart was moved. The heart of of Ahaz was moved. And the heart of his people as the trees of the water moved with the wind. They're terrified in the south. In verse 3, Then God said to Isaiah, Go forth now to meet Ahaz, you and Sharyosh your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool in the highway of the Fuller's field. And say to him... Take heed and be quiet. Don't be afraid. Neither be faint-hearted, For the two tales of these smoking firebrands, for the fierce anger of Rezin with Syria and the son of Ramalia, don't be afraid of them because Syria, Ephraim, and the son of Ramalia have taken evil counsel against you, saying, let's go up against Judah and vex it and let us make a breach therein for us and set a king in the midst of us, even the son of Tabiel. Don't be afraid of their plans. For thus says the Lord God, it will not stand, neither shall it come to pass. God tells Isaiah to assure King Ahaz that these two kingdoms up up north will not be able to touch you. Skipping to verse 11. God says to Ahaz, don't just take my word for it, ask for a sign that this is going to be true. Back to verse 10. Moreover, the gods spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Ask it either in the depth or in the height above. But Ahaz made believe he was a real righteous man. Ahaz said, I will not ask. Neither will I tempt the Lord. I don't need any sign. And he said, Hear ye now, O house of David. This is Isaiah speaking to him. Is it a small thing for you to weary men, but will you weary my God as well? Therefore, you don't want a sign? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. You're going to get a sign anyway. Behold, a virgin will conceive and bear a son, and will call his name Emmanuel. Butter and honey shall he eat, that he may know to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the child shall know to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land that you abhor will be forsaken of both her kings. So the prophecy here in chapter 7 is the southern kingdom of Judah is terrified. The prophet Isaiah reassures them that there's going to be a sign. The sign is this baby is going to be born and before the baby knows good from evil, presumably maybe he's like four or five or six years old, before this child matures, these two kingdoms will be destroyed. That's what's going on here. That's what he's afraid of. What happens if you check out in the second book of Kings chapter 15 and the second book of Kings chapter 16, this is exactly what happens. This prophecy comes to pass and the kingdoms of Syria and Israel are destroyed. So the prophecy of Isaiah actually happened. That these two kingdoms that were terrifying, the southern kingdom of Judah, were wiped out. One simple question. If this prophecy in the book of Isaiah is referring to the birth of Jesus 700 years later, how would that be reassuring to King Ahaz? If the prophet Isaiah was saying, I'm going to give you a sign. You're worried about these two kings attacking? Don't worry! In 700 years, a kid's going to be born of a virgin. And they're going to name him Emmanuel. So how does that help King Ahaz? He's going to be long gone in 700 years. So not only does the context not support the idea that this is speaking about the birth of the Messiah, the context is very clearly limited to the political dangers facing the southern kingdom of Judah 700 years before the common era, but the Christian interpretation makes no sense at all. A birth of a child 700 years later is irrelevant to the king at this time. With the context taken care of, We need to look at the translation problem. We've been reading Christian translations. Does this passage indeed speak about a a virgin giving birth? You need to appreciate, this is very important, that if it said virgin, if it said virgin, it would not support the Christian belief. Let's say the Bible was written in English. Let's say when Isaiah wrote his book, he wrote in English. And let's say he wrote, a virgin will conceive and have a baby in your calling Emmanuel. Does that passage support the Christian idea that a woman is going to be impregnated by the Holy Spirit and that even after giving birth she'll remain a virgin? I would posit, no, it doesn't. Because the simplest way of reading a verse like that would be there's a woman who's a virgin, she's going to get pregnant and have a baby, and you name a kid Emmanuel. Does the passage say that after giving birth this woman will remain a virgin? virgins get pregnant and have kids all the time. Most women, that's what happens. They're virgins, they get pregnant, they have a baby, they're no longer virgins. So, if you wanted to read this passage strictly according to the Christian reading, which is not a correct reading, it still wouldn't prove the Christian contention that it's speaking about a woman who's impregnated by the Holy Spirit and remains a virgin after conceiving and giving birth. There's nothing about the verse which tells you that's what's going to happen. It simply says, according to the Christian mistranslation, that a virgin will conceive and have a baby and name it Emmanuel. That's not unusual. But back to the translation. Does Isaiah here speak about a virgin conceiving and giving birth? You have in the next next page a literal word-for-word translation of the verse. We start on the right-hand side in Hebrew. Lachain, therefore... Etain Adonai, who the Lord himself will give lachem to you, oat a sign. Hine, behold, ha-alma, the young woman, hara, is pregnant, the oledet bane, and will give birth to a son, the karas shmo Immanuel, and she will call his name Immanuel. That is a word-for-word literal translation, of the verse in Isaiah. Now, the Christians are going to say, Michael, you're afraid of translating ha'alma, the underlying word here. You're afraid of translating it as virgin because you're afraid of the implications that uh, this might be talking about Jesus. And we would say, on the contrary, my dear missionary, we think that does protest too much. We think, we think that you, in your... Desperate need to prove your beliefs have overstretched here and have purposely or unwittingly mistranslated this word to be speaking about a virgin when it doesn't. So again, how do you resolve this debate? Is the Jewish translation of young woman more appropriate or the Christian rendition into virgin more appropriate? So we use the technique we learned before. We simply find the word used in the rest of the Bible and see how it's translated. You don't just put a coin we actually check out for corroboration in the rest of the Bible. Every time this word comes up, the, the root of Alma is elem. The masculine form would be elem. In Hebrew, when you want to make a masculine form feminine, you add a he at the end. So, yaled becomes yaldah. Talmid becomes talmidah. So, we make a feminine form in Hebrew by adding a he at the end of the word. So, Alma is the feminine form. The masculine form is elem. So every time we see these words used or some form of these words used in the Hebrew Bible, elem, alma, alumayich, etc., the translation in Jewish and Christian Bibles is referring to youthfulness. The word elem refers to a young man. The word alma refers to a young woman. It does not give you any information about her sexual experience. We see from all the examples quoted here, from 1 Samuel 20, for example, speaks about, if you say thus unto the young man, that's the same root here, lm. or Isaiah 54, it speaks about um, the shame of your youth, al Every time these words are used in the Bible, it refers to a young person, either male or female. It never refers to their sexual experience. An example of this is very interesting is in Exodus chapter two, I have here a King James translation, and it speaks here about the daughter the sister of Moses named Miriam, and when Moses was sent down the river Nile in a basket of of reeds and picked up by Pharaoh's daughter, Miriam his sister followed him. And it says in verse seven that said his sister to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call to you a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? And Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go. And the maid went and called the child's mother. The word here in Hebrew is Alma. The Alma went to call her mother. Now again, the Christian translation in Isaiah renders Alma as a virgin. But clearly the Hebrew word here is in a context where we're not concerned about Miriam's sexual experience. Who cares whether she slept with men before? The, The passage is clearly only interested in the fact that she's a young girl. So even the King James translation doesn't say, so the virgin went and called the child's mother. That's irrelevant. We're going to see that whenever the Bible wants to speak about someone's virginity, there is a special word. But every single place the Bible uses the word Alma, it's not concerned with sexual experience, it's concerned with age. An example of where the word Alma cannot be referring to a virgin is in Proverbs chapter 30. The way of an eagle in the air, the way of a serpent upon a rock, the way of a ship in the midst of the sea, and the way of a man with a alma. So these are three examples of something that happens with no visible trace afterward. When an eagle flies in the air, you cannot see three seconds later any sign that there was an eagle that passed by. The same with a a serpent on the rock. Once it slithers off the rock, there's no way of knowing there was a, a serpent there. And the same as a ship in the midst of the sea. Once it goes by, there's no physical signs that there was a ship there. So too, a way of a man with a maid. If this woman was a virgin, this Alma here in this verse, was a virgin, there would be a physical manifestation of the fact that she was with a man. There'd be bleeding. So clearly, the Alma here is not a virgin. It's simply a young woman who we don't know until the passage whether she had sexual experience in the bottom of the page we see examples of where the Bible wants to tell us specifically that someone is a virgin it uses the Hebrew word betula or basula. for example in Deuteronomy chapter 22 we see a legal context where a man marries a woman thinking she is a virgin not thinking she's a young woman no one's going to wake up in the morning and say oh I thought she was a young girl Right? That's not hard to pull over on someone's eyes. He thinks the woman is a virgin. He marries her, takes her home, it turns out, the next day he finds out she wasn't a virgin. So here the Bible speaks specifically about what happens in this case, and it doesn't use the word Alma, it uses the word Betula. And you have several examples here throughout the Bible where when the context wants to refer to someone's sexual experience, it uses the word Betula. How do we know, objectively speaking, that Alma, in Isaiah 7.14, is inappropriately translated as virgin? virgin? So the simplest way is by finding unfriendly evidence that contemporary Christian translations, virtually all of them, now translate Isaiah 7.14 as young woman and not virgin. If you look at the top of the next page, you have five examples of modern Christian translations where... It's not translated as virgin, but as young woman. You see here the New Jerusalem Bible, which is a Catholic edition, speaks about a young woman in the Revised Standard Version, speaks about a young woman in the Good News Bible, in the New English Bible, in the New Revised Standard Version. Virtually all modern translations of the Christian Bible agree that Matthew mistranslated Alma into virgin and correctly render it as young woman. Now, Is there a Christian response to what we've been saying so far? And I just want you to remember, there are many other problems with this citation in the New Testament. The appeal to Isaiah 7.14 is problematic on many fronts. We've just looked at two, context and translation. So when it comes to translation, the Christian argument will go as follows, and it's fairly sophisticated. Christians will say today, missionaries will say, What are you blaming us for translating Alma as virgin? It wasn't a Christian invention. Actually, rabbis translated it as virgin 200 years before there was a Christianity when there was no vested interest in in changing it. There was no argument going on. And here, missionaries are appealing to the Greek translation of the Bible about 200 years before Christianity in a version known as the Septuagint. Now, Septuagint was essentially a translation of the Bible from Hebrew into Greek. And if you were to read a Septuagint translation of Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, they render the word Alma as the Greek word Parthenos. Now, the missionary claim is that Parthenos means virgin. So, therefore, they're saying that by translating Alma as virgin in the book of Matthew, that's not a Christian invention, that's relying upon a 200-year-old rabbinic tradition, which translates the word Alma as Parthenos. So the question is, how do we respond to this missionary defense? It's a very good argument. So a few things you need to know. Number one, how did the Septuagint come about? According to the Talmud, and according to a letter written by Aristheus, the rabbis never translated the entire Bible into Greek. The Christian assumption is that the rabbis translated the whole Bible, including the book of Isaiah. The truth of the matter is that the rabbis only translated the five books of Moses, and that the rest of the Bible was not translated by rabbis but by Christians. And for centuries, Various Christians worked on the translations of the Septuagint, and we can assume that they translated the Septuagint according to their own theological needs. This is a, a, a copy of the Septuagint where the introduction says the following The variety of the translators is proved by the unequal character of the version. Some books show that the translators were by no means competent to the task, while others, on the contrary, exhibit on the whole a careful translation. The Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, is considered to be the part best executed, while the book of Isaiah appears to be the very worst. So appealing to the Septuagint version of translation the Septuagint, Septuagint translation of Isaiah is very self-serving by Christian missionaries because it was done by Christians in the first place. It wasn't done by rabbis. One of the ways we can prove this, this is interesting, is that we can actually take the Septuagint to the five books of Moses today and compare it to what the Talmud tells us about the Septuagint the rabbis did. It's an interesting story. The Talmud tells us that King Ptolemy of Egypt, who was actually a, 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 um, a Hellenistic Egyptian, a Greek Egyptian, wanted very much to have the Bible rendered into Greek. So he commissioned 70 rabbis. The Talmud tells us they were put in 70 different rooms. And each rabbi worked on translating the five books of Moses, and voila, at the end, they each came out with the exact same translation. It's hard to imagine 70 rabbis agreeing like that. In any event, the Talmud tells us that these 70 rabbis inserted 15 changes in the translation of the text of the Bible to make the Bible a little bit antiseptic in areas that it might be misunderstood. So in order to clarify or to clean up parts of the Bible that may be misunderstood in a literal translation, the Talmud tells us the rabbis changed 15 of the translations literally and inserted or um, changed around some of the translations to make the Bible more palatable. So we have in the Talmud a record of those 15 changes. If you open up the Septuagint today, none of those changes are in here. So there's no evidence at all that the Septuagint that we have today has anything to do with the one that rabbis put out. So there's no appeal to the rabbinic document. But it's worse than that. If you get your hands on a Septuagint, like you have here, we will see that the word Parthenos doesn't mean virgin. You see, when you speak to a missionary that says, well, in the Greek, Parthenos means virgin, very few of you are going to challenge the missionary because you don't know Koine Greek. We're not experts in ancient Greek today. So, ultimately, we will buy their claim because we really don't know how to challenge it. But if you get an old dictionary of classical Koine Greek, it will very clearly say that the word parthenos means actually the same thing that Alma means, a young woman, a young maiden, whether she's virgin or not. Where do you see that in the Septuagint, it doesn't mean virgin? So, here we have a chapter 34 from Genesis, which tells of the story of the rape of Dina, Dina was Jacob's daughter. He had twelve sons, Jacob, and a daughter named Dina. And we're told in Genesis 34 that she was raped by Chamor. I'm sorry, by Shem. She was raped by Shem, the son of Chamor. And after she's raped, after she's raped, the Septuagint refers to her as a parthenos. You see this in verse three after he took her and, and has lain with her, and he was attached to the soul of Dina, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the damsel, and he spoke kindly to the damsel. The word damsel here is parthenos, clearly not a virgin. So, the appeal to the rabbinic translation is baseless. The final appeal that Christian missionaries make is, this, is a uh, substantive one. If you go back to the passage in Isaiah, it said that God will give us a sign. So the Christian argument is, wait a second. If this is a natural, normal birth, what kind of a sign is that? If the story here is God giving a sign, and it's simply a girl who gets pregnant and has a baby, what kind of a sign is that? It happens every day. That's not a sign. So the Christian contention is that the sign needs to be supernatural. It happens. To answer this question... Tell you a quick story this happened many years ago I went to university at Northwestern near Chicago and it's called the Windy City Chicago's a Windy City so having been there I'll tell you that the wind is absolutely horrible and they had a problem in one of the suburbs all of the street signs were being torn out by the wind they're being knocked down they're flying down the street killing people so there was a terrible problem in the city all the street signs we being uprooted by the wind. So they had a town meeting. They discussed, they had many different suggestions. How do we take care of this? So one guy gets up and says, I, I discovered the solution to the problem. You don't want these signs of being uprooted because to put them back every few minutes costs money and they might hurt someone. What we're going to do is we're going to take these signs and just simply bury them under the ground. Okay? It's a great idea. No more flying signs. But you can't see them either. That's right. The sign that you can't see is not a sign. If you can't see it, it's not a sign. So here, God's going to give a sign, right? And what's the sign going to be? A virgin birth. So what happens? Joseph comes home, and Joseph doesn't say, Praise the Lord. This is the Messiah being born, right? And anyone walking down the street back then would not have been able to say about Mary. She's a virgin. She didn't walk around Jerusalem, Bethlehem with a board-certified gynecological examination sticker kind right? i a a board-certified virgin, it's impossible to know whether she's a virgin or not. So a virgin birth could never be a sign for anything. What is a sign, though? A sign must be visible, not necessarily supernatural. Where do we see this? In Genesis chapter 9, God says that he will establish a covenant with mankind. Never again shall all flesh be be cut off by the waters of the flood, and never again shall there be a flood to destroy the earth. God said, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you and every living creature which is with you for all future generations. What is the sign? I set my rainbow in the clouds, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. Rainbow is not supernatural. No one's going to say today that clouds or thunder is supernatural, but it's clearly visible. And throughout the Bible, each one of these cases is a case where the sign is not supernatural, but the sign is certainly visible. In Exodus chapter 3, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you, and this shall be the sign for you that it is I who sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Coming to Mount Sinai was not supernatural, but it was certainly visible. It could be seen. In 1 Samuel chapter 2, the fate of your two sons, this is to to Eli, the high priest, he's told, the fate of your two sons, Chapne and Pinchas, shall be a sign to you. Both of them shall die on the same day. Not supernatural, but visible. Just a few more loose ends and we'll finish up tonight. In the Greek Testament, in the Christian Bible, it's very clear that Jesus did not regard the virgin birth as a sign. Because you see here in Mark chapter 8 and Matthew chapter 12, the Jewish people ask Jesus for a sign. Give us a sign. And Jesus doesn't say, oh, you want a sign? How about the virgin birth? Isn't that good enough of a sign for you? If it was true that Mary was a virgin and gave birth to Jesus and was still intact sexually and her entire impregnation was through the Holy Spirit, there was no transfer of seed... She was still a virgin afterward. That's a pretty big miracle. That's a very amazing servant. Jesus is pretty crucial. What's outstanding is that it's only mentioned in two places in the New Testament. Only in the book of Matthew and the book of Luke. The first gospel Mark does not mention. I mean, when the first gospel writer, Mark, wrote his story, why did Mark forget to tell us that Jesus was born of a virgin? John doesn't mention it. Paul, you should know, by the way, the gospels were not the first Christian writings. The first Christian writings were the letters of Paul. Letters of Paul were written before the Gospels. Paul never mentions the virgin birth of Jesus. So it's very strange that this virgin birth, which is supposedly totally such an, a crucial concept in Christian theology, is just very, very absent from the New Testament itself. What's fascinating is that if you go throughout the New Testament, it's clear that no one ever heard of such a sign. If Mary was told, Mary, the child you have is supernatural. It's the Messiah, the Son of God, born of the Holy Ghost within you. You never see anyone of his family reacting to Jesus with that knowledge. Throughout the New Testament, it refers to the fact that his family thought he was crazy, they thought he was nuts, they never know what he's talking about. At one point in the Gospels, little 12 year old Jesus gets lost in Jerusalem, and he doesn't go home with his parents, and the parents get worried. They're looking for Jesus. Where are you? They finally find him, and he says, Oh, don't worry. I was here doing the business of my father. Well, a very strange thing. Here, mother and father coming to get him, and he says, I was doing the business of my father. Now, if Mary was told that his father was the Holy Spirit, God himself, she would have a clue as to what this meant. They never know what he's talking about, so you don't get the impression through any of the New Testament literature that people, especially his family, had a knowledge, had an understanding that he was a special kid born of a virgin through the Holy Spirit as the Son of God. They treat him like he's crazy at the time. Finally, there is no clue. There's no indication in Jewish literature that the Messiah is born of a virgin. However, There is plenty of information in the Greek and pagan and Hellenistic mythologies dating back before Jesus where it was very common to believe in these pagan religions that a savior would be born of a virgin. So if there was any source for the idea of a virgin birth messiah, it clearly had basis in much of the ancient superstitious world. We have here a passage from a book called The Story of Christian Origins by Martin Lawson who says, We observe also that the doctrine of the virgin birth, without which no prophet or savior god could be a divine incarnation, was common among ancient cults, that it was impossible for any religious founder to achieve acceptance without it. It was indeed unknown to Brahmanism or Judaism, but these exercised little or no influence on the gospel Jesus. In the mystery cult, in Zoroastrianism, and in Buddhism, all saviors, past, present, and future, were incarnate gods, born of human virgin, virgins. virgins, This was an idea which came so easily and so naturally to primitive priests in order to establish their own authority that it sprang up independently in many places. Jesus was simply accorded the same honor by universal demand after his cult began making converts in the pagan world. Just one more idea here, which which backs this up. We now have access to... We now have access to a lot of the material that was written by the early... Christians, by the early Jewish Christians, the Ebionites, for example, one of the first early Christian groups who were all Jews, and the Nazarenes, who was also a group of early Jewish Christians, these Jewish Christian groups did not believe in the idea of a virgin birth. We have that in the literature. So clearly the idea of a virgin birth is very foreign to Judaism, very foreign to the Jewish Bible, and really has no basis in our religion.
0: Jews for Judaism hopes that you have found this audio recording to be helpful and informative. Jews for Judaism is an international organization dedicated to countering the multi-million dollar efforts of Christian missionary groups that target Jews, the impact of destructive cults and Eastern religions, and the growing rate of intermarriage that is devastating the Jewish community. Jews for Judaism achieves its goals through one-on-one counseling services and educational programs and materials that connect Jewish people to the spiritual depth, beauty, and wisdom of Judaism. Please contact Jews for Judaism if we can help you. www.jewsforjudaism.ca Keeping Jews Jewish